And welcome to yet another edition of Hunter Gathers, the podcast of Hunter S. Thompson Stories and our special examination of fear and loathing on the campaign trail 72 as it relates to 22, 50 years later. Broadcasting from our historic studios in New Orleans on Magazine Street, I am Christopher Tidmore and our host is joining us from the beauteous yet cold coast of Maine, one Curtis Robinson. Curtis, in your neck of the woods, what is it like? Well, it's it's a gorgeous day. Got to say, it's wonderful, spectacular day, uh, and you know, and I, I have to say, politically, storm clouds, my friend, storm <laughs> clouds. But to jump right into it, the the hunter always used to say that the next election begins when they're counting votes. You know, and uh, which is why we, by the way, we did the this episode at the end of November because they were still counting votes in 1972. A week later, now we literally finally have the last bit of votes that are being counted in California. How no, that's, that's my Hunter and I used to talk about what what if we what if we uh, uh, did elections more like sporting events, for instance, if there were four weeks of elections and then at the end of each week you announce the score. Candidate A has this many votes. Candidate B, and we always figured that by the end of the fourth week, everybody would have voted. It would it would really increase turnout because it would be like, oh God, we're behind or we're ahead. But you know the way we do it now, it's like it's like watching a basketball game with without a scoreboard. They just tell you at the end who who had the most baskets. It's like you can't keep count. But you know I I think net net, the analogy to seventy two, I think it held up better than I thought it would. A lot better. And, and I think the after-election stuff, when you read about um, – well, Hunter and I used to talk about Elko. Uh, after – the story is that after the Nixon sweep, Hunter uh, got the idea of bringing a lot of the up-and-coming managers of the Democratic message. I always mispronounce Pat's last name, but Pat Cadal. Cadell, Cadell, Polster, yeah, yeah, Cadell. Uh, the Polster, he was there. He was one of the shakers and movers. And the idea was to bring the McGovern people together with the Kennedy people. It's, it's said that he gave everybody a lug wrench when they got there in case it got ugly. But uh, <laughs> I think people say lug wrench because they don't know what they. What he actually gave them was one of these huge metal rods that truckers use to check their tires. You'll see, you know, particularly in the old days, you'll see them pound on their tires with uh, this this arm. He gave them all one of those which is as lethal a device as you could hand someone. But the, the yeah, quaint it used, it used to be was, known in the Middle Ages as like a staff or a mace, you know, just so yes, we understand. Yes, something yeah, something very similar, very, very similar. <laughs> so he got, he got the, the, the brains together out in Elko, Nevada, which is on the loneliest road in America. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful town. It's got a great hotel. Uh, I highly recommend it for isolated political meetings. So he, he got people together there to talk about where the Democratic Party had to go. I, th- I find it interesting that he thought you know, you could have a meeting and decide something like that. Of course, Rolling Stone, I think uh, Rolling Stone paid for the airfares and, and other things. That's the way things were then. But I think the post-election stuff has held up. The fact that you look at what happened and, and you almost immediately see it in terms of the next election – this next election, of course, he was coming off a of presidential, so he was going to an off year. Mm-hmm. We're coming off the midterms, going into you know the presidential election of, of all time. 
but let's let's start with the comparisons, and I think it's it falls into it. I mean, one of the obvious comparisons that nobody would have figured out by '74, but everybody learned and realized by '94 or '92 was the fact that there are two staffers of McGovern leaving Texas, going to Arkansas, deciding whether to get married, and deciding that trying to run a far left campaign is not going to work. They have to recreate themselves, and they're better known as Bill and Hillary Clinton. And it was, I would say, the Democratic Leadership Council and the moderate Blue Dogs was born as a political force after that election. But I'm actually more curious, Curtis, and I want to get your impressions on this because we've talked about this off air, and I, I think it's worthwhile talking about on air. The fact that even though there's this overwhelming tide for Nixon, 61% of the vote, unprecedented, he had 49 states, 49 states, including McGovern losing his home state of South Dakota. The only state he wins is Massachusetts. And yet, and this is the important part, if you want to draw a comparison, Biden's unpopularity, this, that, and this, and yet the Republicans barely won the House, really only won the House because New York was New York State was literally its own race. It had nothing to do with the rest of the country. Where they were running against crime, they ran a textbook race, and four seats the Republicans probably shouldn't have won came through. And I would throw a fifth seat, Tom Keene's in Jersey City, right um, in the New York suburbs. Five seats that came about on an anti-crime campaign that was totally disconnected with the rest of the country. That's the majority. But I kept thinking about what was happening, and then I realized something. So McGovern loses his home state. And he doesn't lose it overwhelmingly, but it's comfortably, 54-46. However, a Democrat wins the open U.S. Senate seat of the retiring Karl Munt. His name is James Abramovics. And he beats a state legislator who's really known by 14 points on the same ticket McGovern is losing his home state. Other things, Colorado, Hunter's home state. Nixon won it 63% of the vote, and yet... Floyd Haskell unseats Gordon a lot. No coattails, 49-48. Iowa, Dick Clark beats Jack Miller in a state that Nixon took with 58% of the votes, 59-49. Maine, your home state. The great Margaret Chase Smith is unseated by Bill Hathaway, 53-47, even though uh, Nixon wins Maine by 61% of the vote. But to bring it full circle in the elections... The biggest upset that entire election cycle, there were a couple things that happened. John Chafee gets elected in that election in Rhode Island, so the Republicans have a net gain, but at least gain that seat. But the biggest upset is a guy who was thought could not be defeated, an institution in Delaware named Caleb Boggs. And he's beaten by a 29-year-old kid called Joe Biden. Fifty forty nine in a state Nixon that was, won. That, that was the Biden year. That, that was, the, was Biden. the Biden year, wasn't it? That was the Biden year. Nixon wins. I mean, we don't think of Delaware. Uh, this Nixon wins at 60-40. And yet Joe Biden manages to unseat. To give you an idea of how powerful Caleb Boggs was, I mean, he was the institution in the Senate at the time. He was nothing happened on the Senate floor without Caleb Boggs on either party saying it, he was truly and beyond a shadow of a doubt a player. And not only did Nixon have no coattails, he couldn't, literally the guy who was, who no one gave Joe Biden a chance. That's why the 29-year-old kid got the nomination, because it was absurd that anybody could beat Caleb Boggs, especially in that year. And look what happened. No coattails. So we saw saw a lot of analysis, particularly I thought CNN did a, a good job on 
really comparing the Trump vote from previous elections to the Trump vote and, and also looking at where where the split was. And, and, I, and I've seen that elevated. I've seen, you know, you look at Governor Cooper in uh, North Carolina. He has fared well in his, as a Democrat, even when Trump was doing well. So and I think they're referring that to that as split ballot, which is I was, you know, has, has meant something else. But they're talking about people who split their ballot between one party and another. I mean, another good example is the split between how many votes the Republican in Georgia got versus how many votes the, the Herschel Walker got for Senate. And hundreds of thousands of people switched. They voted. And, yeah. and that, that's not as unusual as it used to be, but it's still always worth noting. But that's a good point. That So th- thus, when, when one does not have any coattails, when one does not impact down ballot, one does not have much loyalty in the legislature. Because, and, and, I, and I find that very interesting because if you think about it, Trump's power in the Republican Party particularly after this election, won't be seen as being able to get you elected. It will be seen as being able to get you the nomination. And, and I think it's important. There's, there's one element that, I, that nobody in the, the blogosphere, the punditi, as I like to call them, uh, after the banditi, there's, nothing, there's something nobody caught on about Trump and the GOP coming out of the last presidential election going to the midterms. Trump may have lost the presidency but he had coattails up to the beginning of November in the last election. Everyone thought that this was going to be a wipeout of Republicans in Congress if Trump lost. And the GOP almost won the majority of the House and and kept – it looked like they were going to keep the majority in the Senate. Purdue missed getting elected as the senator from um, Georgia by like a 1,000 votes. No Republican had ever lost in the runoff. I mean so it looks like he came out of it with Trump looking like he may have lost and there's a real question about how he lost, quote unquote, amongst the supporters. But at the same time, it seemed like, well, you know what? Trump didn't do all that badly. I mean, what's what's you know, he actually got he actually was a net positive for us. No one, no one at this point, not one person, not Trump's greatest defenders will say Trump was a net positive for the GOP in any election, even like one like J.D. Vance, where they won. But he was, what, 10 points behind Mike DeWine and the gubernatorial race. And he barely beat Ryan every other race where he his candidates won the ballot. There's a lot, you know, there was a loss and a massive loss. I mean, and whereas those that were not considered particularly close to Trump walked into a term in office without any problems, Kemp in Georgia being the most prime example. I think that's what happened. And what, in my view, the rising voices of people who could write us against Trump and the sort of indifference about his tax returns being subpoenaed, the Supreme Court allowing that, is much the same as the GOP in Congress sort of shrugging about the Democrats going after Nixon, because at that point they figured, you know what? He didn't help us. He's not going to win again. And, you know, we're, well, we're not going to kill our, we're not going to help. We're not going to inhibit people wanting to go in a different direction. I, I, it's all about, does the top of the ticket help you get elected? Your thoughts? So I would say, you know, Hunter would say, well, what's the, what's the potential outcome? What, what does all that mean? Because now it's not, you can speculate, and I'm sure it's fun to do so, about Trump versus somebody else in the general election in 24. But I think now that the, the, the speculation is Trump versus somebody in the 
GOP primary. I, I do think that the election results make it more likely that he gets a, a serious challenger. So what what are, what are your thoughts there? You know, I know uh, you can almost you know, you can almost hear Hunter in the background like, oh, the election begins now. But and, well, it literally does and, because and, Trump and, announced. And, yeah, it's like yeah. Well, I was I, I said well, it doesn't really get any way until Trump announces, and I I did not expect him to announce that quickly. But I guess there's a lot of strategy in terms of bookkeeping and and prosecutions. It sure got him a special counsel in a hurry. Uh, that said, what do you think? How do you think it affects the Republican primary? It, we went from one strong challenger to six. The simple answer is you want to know what happened with the GOP primary. Look at the Republican Jewish coalition. Now you're like Republican. I mean, it, it, this was this was a whole thing of, hey, Republican Jewish coalition. Nixon was trying to woo over the Jewish vote a lot with his support of Israel and sort of going against voices in the GOP. Everyone appear except Trump appeared in Las Vegas to, to woo the biggest Jewish fundraisers. Who was there? Nikki Haley, who's probably one of the most capable people in the GOP in the presidential sweepstakes. I don't know if she'll make it, but she was she had previously said, I'm not running against Donald Trump. Now she's running. A Hindu American former governor of South Carolina. Who else? Cruz, who managed to destroy all his credibility with the Jewish people by asking them to text something on a Saturday from their phones to his campaign, which ever is, his, you know, who, who's his prep? His A is just insane. You'd, yeah, deep breath. Deep yeah. breath on how that got through. Yeah, yeah I mean, like the room there. just went down. But other people, uh, Tim Scott of South Carolina, he, what looks like another South Carolinian, but the first, you know, he's got a shot at being the first African-American. I mean, everybody... And, of course, the man who's only tertiarily in the room, Ron DeSantis. My question is this. Donald Trump didn't win in, in 2016 in the Republican primaries because he was so overwhelmingly more attractive than all the other candidates. He won because there were multiply good, attractive candidates, and there wasn't one overwhelming strength. Everybody thought that was going to be Jeb Bush, and Jeb Bush collapses very quickly. I have a friend, he's passed away now, who gave one of the, he gave like 2 million of the 112 million that came in and watched Jeb Bush not make it to the first primary. And he says it would have been better to set the money on fire, he told me. Then <laughs> at least I would have got some warmth out of it. Yes, yes, yes. It's, uh, that's true. So, yeah. so, you know, that that is the path to Trump getting the nomination is five or six candidates and he you know he has a core of 30 to 40 percent that are going to vote for him no matter as he would put it if he shot someone on the street yeah and that's that's the danger of trump and um charlie sykes was talking about that on the bulwark and he was like it happens but it's also we, we've been comparing 72 it's also how nixon comes through in 68 no one really thought nixon was the strongest candidate in 68 he had been around forever. He just this. He'd run in sixty. We'd never, you know, other than Grover Cleveland, they'd never re, no party had ever renominated the same guy over and over, save one example. That's William Jennings Bryan, and it was never successful. Cleveland's the only person who ever did, and yet Nixon had a, a hold on about thirty to forty percent of the party, and every all the A list ran, and he just managed to survive each contest, and that's what Trump could theoretically do. But I, I got to tell you. Right now, the Republican establishment has gone from being afraid of Donald Trump and being somewhat greedy about winning to saying, if we have this guy on the top of the ticket, we will lose this bare House majority and we'll be at 40 seats in the Senate. And 
the the person to watch in all of this, just like the person to watch in '72 was Howard Baker, the person to watch in all of this is Mitch McConnell, who hates Trump with a V. I have never seen it. I mean, any party majority leader, a minority leader, come out and say the reason we lost the election is because people were afraid of the guy who was the top of the ticket, even though he wasn't. I mean, he was. You don't yes, get that, yeah, don't that, get that, that bluntness that, on, on a panel on MSNBC, for God's sakes. Well, it's going to it's going to it's going to bring up the uh, it's going to get more and more interesting in, in, in those terms. You know, I I think those people you know, through the election who feel like we miss Hunter now, it's uh, it's certainly you certainly have to wonder what he would make of this. You know, he always. He offered many, many cautions about getting in a position where you've got to vote for the lesser of two evils. And I think people will, will feel like that, people who don't love the idea of voting for Joe Biden again. You know, it goes back to one of my basic sayings, which is primaries have always been about voting for someone you like. General elections have always been about going and voting against someone. <laughs> so, boy, it would be it would be an odd thing, but it certainly makes it. Well, the the again, we'll we'll quote Dr. Thompson. Though we live in interesting times, and what I would think of is what is Hunter writing about after the election? He's writing about how the Republicans win the white working class, the sort of New Deal coalition. He's talking about himself, and ultimately, the thing that happened in this election, the reason the Republicans won the House, is they did actually win three million more votes than the Democrats did because their base turned out, and in key congressional districts, the Democratic turnout was not as intense. Is that an off-year phenomenon, or are we going to see something again? Because where the, the Democratic turnout was intense, read Michigan, the abortion turnout, the Republicans lost the Michigan legislature for the first time in 40 years. Almost since fear and loathing on the campaign trail came in, they yes, had control of the legislature. The timing on that goes full circle. Well, you know, it, it's interesting to, to see that. It's, also, it's, it's, it's interesting to see the evolution of, of the voting blocks and, and how they change, and uh, particularly what happens in places like Colorado uh, that as, as, as they migrate one way or another. The, the big trick to, to Hunter's Philosophy, political philosophy at this point is, um, you know, controlling your environment becomes a very specific thing, and the politics of of the neck of the lame duck, and then of the next two years because the lame duck will be we're releasing this in, at the first of December, so the la- the lame duck appropriations bill it's a Christmas tree bill everything's going to get hung on it, and we'll see what happens with that at the end of the year, and then. It'll be all about what can Joe Biden do administratively into next year. I don't know. It's a fa- it, 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 it's hard to imagine a more fascinating political landscape than we face right now. The thing that I keep going over in my head, and we're making predictions, what comes out in, in the 70s, you start seeing some of the first long-term examinations of entitlements that will lead, uh, that will lead to the 82 deal on Social Security. It takes years to do it. But it was because... You had kind of uncertain political environments that people could bring up ideas because they they didn't know if they were going to win or lose. It wasn't as sharp as it was. Here's my curiosity about Joe Biden. If I were in Joe Biden's position, I'd still be telling everybody, as he is, I'm running for re-election. But I would seriously be looking at a a solution to the bankruptcy of Social Security and Medicare and and put on the table privately to McCarthy, you help me with this and I don't run again. 
because that would because I mean he's turning <laughs> he'll be eighty five when he takes another term in office. He has a chance to have a kind of legacy. I don't think that's going to happen. I will tell you that the Democrats, just like what happened in seventy two that we we talked about at the beginning of the year. It did not look like McGovern was the guy for years. It looked like it was going to be Louisiana's John McKithen or something like that, a Southern Democrat that could re, that could bring back a lot of the American Party people. What was the man from Maine? Uh, yeah. Senator Muskie for a long Muskie, time. Was exactly. It was the moderates. So what happened after McGovern was you started seeing that they start looking for a moderate Southern governor and that Jimmy Carter starts to come out of the miasma of that. So I'm, I'm curious, I don't think the answer for the Democrats is a Southerner anymore. My curiosity is, is the answer for the Democrats a Westerner? And let's go back to somebody, and I'm curious what Hunter thought the most successful governor electorally, arguably in the country, was in Colorado. It's Jared Polis. Jared Polis presents a problem for the Democrats because he's pro-gun and fiscal conservative and a complete social liberal. He would be somebody Hunter might find interesting. And yet I'm curious where that goes, because if anybody sort of goes back to the traditional model, in fact, he's a little to the right of where the traditional model is. It's Paulus. It's Colorado. And as usual, Colorado is sort of informing the rest of the country. There, that, that could be. I mean, he was on Bill Maher the other night, and I thought he did really, really well. I was very interested. I hadn't seen him in that sort of format I'd only seen him in campaign formats, and I thought he was he was very, very relaxed. He poo-pooed the idea of running for president, but he didn't rule it out. And Lamar, frankly, brought up a great point. He said, you know, you're a white guy that's a governor, but you check a box because he is, of course, uh, I think the only probably serving openly uh, gay. Gay person uh, in to, to to be a governor, so I don't know. That's why that's that's by the way why he's able to run on cutting income taxes and cutting taxes in Colorado with the statement. I think the ideal income tax that Coloradans ought to pay is zero, and still win a Democratic primary because everybody in the Democratic primary knows. Well, gay people, of course, are conservative fiscally. We, we know that already. They they get a pass on that. Nobody else would, but he does. <laughs> yeah, that may be true. I, I don't. I don't know. I don't know what stereotypes would come back to help him, but but nonetheless, I mean, I got to say, I, I, my Republican friends in Colorado, they secretly love him. They think he's done a great job, and they 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 thought his reactions were were fairly. His COVID reactions were were fairly down the middle. They didn't. They they thought he was cautious without without being without overreacting. So, yeah, I, I, you know, there, there you go. And if you start to look around for those guys, don't forget my Governor Cooper down in uh, North Carolina. Yeah, I, think, yeah. I think, you know. What I'm looking for is who is going to be the Gary Hart coming out of this, ironically, a Coloradan. Who's going to be the guy who starts asking some serious questions about the Democratic Party? I don't know. I don't know if you can get nominated the way Gary. I don't know if you can become front runner the way Gary Hart became front runner with being the guy that asked the questions. I think I think now, more and more. I, I I don't know. I don't know how much of a cheerleader you have to be. Uh, I think that Hunter would find this a very difficult thing. But I think he would. I think in my heart that his biggest thing would be, you know, be careful who we nominate, mm. and and we in that. For Hunter Thompson could be a wide swath. He always knew who us was and them was, but it could seem arbitrary to outsiders. 
Speaking of being non-arbitrary to outsiders, as we sort of wrap up today's show, Curtis, kind of talk about what we're going to be doing that I teased earlier on. We're not ending the, even though it's post-election, we're not ending the hunter-gatherer fear and loathing in the campaign trail in 72, but we're going to take it in an interesting direction. Can you talk about that? We are. We're, we're, we're going to begin our regular fans. This is all in reaction to, to feedback. First is that we will continue on a monthly basis for now to do uh, uh, what I call fear and podcasting on the campaign trail. But we'll, we'll, to look toward 24, we will do that monthly. And then we will uh, do weekly postings of the hunter-gatherers. More generally, we we get back to telling hunter stories, not just political stories, and 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 so off we go on that. And so I guess the point is the the election is finally over. Long live the election. <laughs> uh, long live Hunter's perspectives on the election. And folks, that takes us out of this week. We'll see you coming back with our regular Hunter Gathers Expos as we go towards Christmas and more of this in the coming months. Uh, always a pleasure. Curtis Robinson. I'm Christopher Tidmore. And we'll see you next week. <laughs> <laughs>